Uh, we are primarily in Acts chapter 8 today. We're continuing to walk through the books of, book of Acts together. But I'm going to back up uh, into chapter 7, and we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 44, if you want to be turning there uh, in your Bibles or on your devices. And also that whole text, 744 through the end of chapter 8, is also in your worship guide. And I know that there's so many verses every week that Justin's done a great job trying to squeeze all those on and still leave you room to write in there. And so you have to flip a couple pages if you're using the one in your worship guide, but it is all in there. Um, in just a minute, I'm going to read that section for us, and I'm going to ask you to be listening primarily for what's this teach us about God? Like how do we see God and know God better as he reveals himself to us in the truth of his word? And then based on that, on who God is and, and who he's showing us that he is, what's he saying to our hearts today, to you, to me, to us as a church, the way that he wants to work in us and change us because of who he is? And so we're going to pray together right now and ask him to do that, that this would be a, a time of spiritual work and spiritual power where his spirit is teaching and we're not just getting together as human beings with human power and human resources and human thoughts and talking through this on our own, but that the spirit would be at work during this time. So will you pray with me right now? Father, we do ask that you will speak right now from the truth of your word that your Holy Spirit will be the master teacher and that he will teach spiritual truths with spiritual words. He will work in our hearts and he would soften our hearts to hear and believe and love you as we see you and know you more. And Father, I confess that if anything of spiritual significance is going to happen right now, you have to do it because I can't. I don't have that ability or that power, and you do. And we trust that you offer it right now because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection. And so we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask you to do right now what only you can do in our lives and in our hearts and in your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 44. What's this teach us about God? And this is Stephen in the middle of his sermon. He's on trial under threat of possible execution, definitely under threat of persecution, imprisonment. He's preaching back now to the people who have him on trial. And we're picking up kind of halfway through um, after he's summarized most of the Old Testament because I believe what he says here really connects into where we go today. So in the middle of Stephen's sermon here, Acts 7, verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, I know we covered a lot again, but what stands out to you? What's that teach us about God? Who's breaking the ice today? Yeah, that they kill Stephen's body. Obviously, they don't kill his soul or his spirit. You know, that's Jesus saying, hey, don't fear those who can kill the body. <laughs> fear the one who can throw body and soul into hell. 
And he's saying there's some, you know, something beyond just this life and this world physically. And there's probably like five truths we can pull out of that if we really want to. But you know, initially that Jesus raises the dead. You know, and physical death is not the end because of Jesus. And even, I think if we think in the terms of this story, you know, Stephen's physical death leads to an explosion of spiritual life. That the church for the very first time, leaves Jerusalem, spreads to all Judea and Samaria, which is like, in, in terms of geography in Israel, think of it as one city, Jerusalem, one city, Nashville. Right? There, in the entire United States, in the entire country, there is one church in one city, one church in Nashville. That's the only church in the whole country. And when this happens, Stephen's death the church explodes out of Jerusalem, out of this one city. Judea and Samaria is the south and the north. It's the entire country of Israel. And so what's happening here is the church is going from one city to an entire country, and it all it gets ignited with the death of Stephen. And so I think we go even farther and say that um, God often, and we see this all throughout church history, and especially in the book of Acts, uses physical death For spiritual purposes. And obviously the reason he does that is because he set the pattern once and for all with Jesus. That the physical death of Jesus secures our spiritual forgiveness, our spiritual redemption, our spiritual restoration with God, our spiritual resurrection to be with God for that Jesus steps down into the physical world and in his power, he lifts it up into the spiritual, unites us with him in that way. And so then we say, maybe this life is not all there is to life. Like if you live like this life and this world is all there is and you pour out your life and all your time and your energy and your focus and your hopes and dreams just to achieve and get and gather and hoard in this life for yourself or even for your children, you're missing what this life is all about. There's something greater. There's something bigger. There's something beyond this that God has connected this life to that and he wants you to pour your life out for this greater life that's going to matter forever, that's going to last forever. That, that gives significance to whatever you do in this life, even when you die in this life. That there's spiritual significance when it's for the cause of Christ, in the name of Jesus, given to Jesus, trusting him to use it in ways that only he can. So this life's not all there is to life. And there are eternal things that are more important than this life. Do you live like there is something more than this life? Do you live with the type of purpose and focus that says this life is to be invested in something so much greater, something that will last for in the name of Jesus, the cause of Jesus, the church of Jesus. And when that happens, your life takes on a value that your life can never have in and of itself. Like, like to live separate from Jesus is to waste your life. Right? To get to the end of your life and look and say, it, it doesn't matter. But to give your life to Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, for, for your whole life to belong to Jesus and be used for his purposes means that it matters forever. That, that you're connected to things that will last forever. All, all the most significant things, both in the history of the world and then all eternity, are found in Jesus. And in his grace, he invites you to be connected to all of that and give your life for that. What else do you see in this? True forgiveness is of Christ. What makes you say that? I mean, it's absolutely true, but...
right. True forgiveness comes from Jesus. Now, we actually, you know, we see this multiple, you're right, multiple ways right here with Stephen. We talked about this briefly at the end last week, this really important note right here, that he's full of the Holy Spirit. As he is preaching such a bold, confrontational, um, controversial sermon, that he is full of the Holy Spirit. This is the way that God would have us declare truth about Jesus. But then also, when we get down here and the very people who are killing them, and the last thing he does is to pray for the people who are killing them and to killing him and to pray for their forgiveness. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Praying that they will be forgiven. And so what we would say is that the only way that Stephen gets to a place where he can forgive this radically, where this type of grace can flow out of him, is because the Holy Spirit's living this type of grace in him now. This is not natural. This is not human. That he's full of the Holy Spirit. And we would also say then the result is when we are full of the Holy Spirit, when we are in contact with Jesus and trusting Jesus and made one with Jesus and Jesus is really living in us, this is the type of thing that starts to happen in us. Like if this type of grace and love never sprouts up in us at all, the, the scary question is, does Jesus live in us? Because this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like. He hangs on the cross, and he looks at the people who have killed him, and he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, and even on a larger scale, he hangs on the cross for every single one of us. It's our fault that he's there. Our sin puts him there, and he wants forgiveness for all of us. Like His mission is grace and forgiveness and love. And so his people, if we really are his people and he's living in us, he's going to produce grace and forgiveness and love in us. And so the reason that Stephen forgives this way is because of Jesus and not because of Stephen. It's because the spirit of Jesus now lives in him. So that's part of it. But also I think it's interesting that, and this is huge, who are they killing right here? Stephen. Not a trick question, right? They're killing Stephen. Yeah. Who are they throwing rocks at? Who would we think is being sinned against? Stephen, right? They're killing Stephen. They're throwing rocks at Stephen. And Stephen doesn't say, I forgive you. This is a really big deal right here. Like Stephen doesn't see this sin primarily as against. They are killing him, but he knows he's not the center of the universe. Their sin is not primarily against him. And so he cannot forgive it in the way that Matt. He can forgive them. But that's not, he, he, he doesn't say, I forgive you. He looks to Jesus and says, Lord, don't hold this against him. Because he knows this sin is ultimately against Jesus. All sin is ultimately against Jesus. And Jesus can forgive in a way that none of us can. Jesus forgives in a way that before God himself takes away your debt, takes away the price that you owe, the penalty of death that you deserve. Only Jesus can do that in a way that is eternally spiritually significant, in a way that makes you right with God. Our forgiveness should be an echo of that, like a shadow of that, a glimpse. It should look like that. It should be patterned after that. It should flow out of that as he lives in us. But there's something that only Jesus can do because he is the center of the universe. It's about him, and all sin is sin against him. When you sin against somebody else, the one that you're sinning against ultimately is Jesus because you're not treating that person the way that Jesus would have you treat that person. Like It's because of him. And so forgiveness has to come from him. And I, I, just, I think you see in the middle of Stephen being so bold when he preaches to this people, these people, you also see this humility in Stephen where he's like, hey, me dying is not about me. You sinning against me is not about me. It's about Jesus. And you need Jesus' forgiveness in a way that I can't give it to you, but I'll pray for you to have it. Like there is... It's incredible humility here of Stephen and just a reminder of what it looks like to realize that this whole thing is about God. That when we read the Bible and ask, what does this teach us about God? Like that isn't just a Bible study method. That is an acknowledgement of this is what reality is like. All reality is from God. It is through God. It is to God. It is for God. He is the center of all things. He is the source of all things. And in a really weird way, if you and I were to come to the Bible and not ask that question, like if we come to the Bible in a way that doesn't acknowledge, hey, this whole thing's about God, and God is most important, and God is center, and God is the foundation. If we come to the Bible in a way that's just about us, even in a way that's like, hey, what good things should I do? What should I be like? How, 
What are, what are five steps to uh, being a better parent or seven tips to being a better husband or a better wife or ten ways to manage my money? And that's all of it. Like it is not connected to the truth of who God is in a really weird way. That is still the root of all self-centered sin. Like you can study the Bible in a way that's sinful and not faithful to God in a way that puts you at the center and makes it about you and your behavior and your life and you miss who God is and missing who God is, turning away from God, treating him like he's not most significant is sin. Right? It's Adam and Eve saying, hey, if we eat this fruit, we'll be like him. We won't need him now. We can be at the center. We can rely on us. We can depend on us. We'll have what we need and we won't need him. In this really weird way, we can even come to the Bible. Like we could approach, Stephen could approach forgiveness and be like, I can do this. I don't need Jesus for this. To miss Jesus, to not have a Christ-centered religion is to have a religion that propagates sin in your life. It must be about Jesus. Faith in Jesus, reliance on Jesus, this humble confession of your need for Jesus, submission to Jesus, surrender to Jesus, constantly looking to Jesus and declaring, you've got it all and I've got nothing. You can do it all and I can't do any of it apart from you. And now you live in me and so I trust you to produce in me what only you can and let everything flow out of that. When I forgive these people, let it look just like you forgiving these people. Like They're killing me when they killed you. This is what you did. Live that through me. So that when you would see Stephen, you would see Jesus. So that when people would see us, they would see Jesus. True forgiveness comes from Jesus. What else stands out to you? God's plans are greater than men's plans. Put women's too, just in case you need to know that God's plans are greater than yours too, ladies. Um, yeah, I feel like I about stroked out on this last week. I know, um, so I'm going to try just to say a couple words here and let y'all keep talking. But nobody would build the church the way that God builds the church right here. Like, I don't know that you have a very many conferences or read very many books today about church growth that say death to self, death to self-reliance and self-protection and, and death to all the external measures and, and markers of, of growth and success, die to all that stuff and have a church that gets utterly blown up by persecution and this is how you'll build the church. It's not what we think. It's not what we do. It's not what we rely on. It's not what we trust so much of the time. But when, when God is fulfilling the very promise that he made through Jesus, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to build my church. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And here it happens. Jerusalem finally goes to Judea and Samaria. He does it through persecution. He does it by killing one of the boldest, most spirit-filled leaders in the early church and then persecuting the whole church to such an extent that they're driven out of Jerusalem, that the, the one church that exists is gone now, no longer gathering together, no longer you know, safe and, and, and whole in this city, scattered wherever. And, you know, we looked last week, they leave the apostles behind. Like, everybody's gone except the apostles, except the ones that are supposed to be the leaders. And yet this is the moment when God starts reaching Judea and Samaria and starts the trek to the ends of the earth. And it's not the way that we would do it. It doesn't look like anything like what we would do. And just let this be a reminder for you of why it's so significant that we would pray for God to do the work that only he can do. That we would pray for God to do this in a way that God does this. Because if we rely on ourselves, we'll get what we can do. And it doesn't look like this. If we rely on God, we get the type of thing that God does. And there's nothing that can stop that. There's nothing that can stand in the way of that. And if God's plans are greater than our plans, then if we keep trusting our plans and doing things our way, we're always going to get less than what God would do. It may look better to you. It may be more comfortable. It may make more sense to you. You may think, this looks good. You know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start this and do this and build this and have these programs and this and this and this. And these people come and you may be able, you may be able to count it and you may be able to measure it. This looks good. And it's not what God would do. 
It's nothing like what God would do. If we rely on our plans, we'll get what we can do and we'll miss what God would do. What if, what if God says, no, I, I don't want you to focus all your time and energy and resources just right here in this room, in this building once or twice a week. Like, I want you there. And in order to get you there, I can't let you have everything right here. I mean, that's basically what he says to them in Jerusalem, right? I've got to make this bad enough to get you out of here because you're not where I want you to be yet. His plans and his ways of doing things and the things he produces are so much greater than ours. And so for us to come with this real heart of humility and trust and just say, God, will you please do your work? Pour out your spirit. Lead us. Show us. Show us where you want us to be. And if it looks nothing like what humans would say it should be, let us do that if that's what you're saying. Because we want what you can do and not what we can do. What else stands out to you? Truths about God or things God's saying to your heart right now? Jesus is so much better than all other spiritual power. You know, we get this next story. After the church is dislodged from Jerusalem and they're spreading, Philip goes to Samaria, preaches about Jesus there in Samaria, and you have this magician, Simon, uh, who in all likelihood is performing like what we would call supernatural signs and wonders because there is spiritual power, spiritual beings outside of just God, Jesus. You've got angels, you've got fallen angels that we would call Satan and demons, and, and they do have spiritual power, just not spiritual power equal to God's. And you see here that as the gospel, first of all, triumphs in Samaria, and these people who've been rejected by the pure-blooded Jews in the South, um, you know, the, the, just the, most of the Samaritans at this time had intermarried with Gentiles and weren't pure Jews, and, and just the Jews despised them. You read John 4, and it's why the, the apostles are so shocked when Jesus sits down in Samaria and talks not just to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman and a Samaritan woman with a very, 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 very bad reputation. And, and Jesus starts you know, his ministry outside of Jerusalem with her, um, but not just triumphing in Samaria, but triumphing then with this person who seems to be very reliant on dark spiritual powers. And one of the reasons I say Jesus is so much better than all their spiritual power is whatever spiritual power that Simon was getting from demons, from Satan, notice that it's not enough. <laughs> like He can't summon the Holy Spirit with that spiritual power that that spiritual power has no access to or power over the Holy Spirit. And so whatever he was doing magically, he can't do anything that has the spiritual significance of what God's doing in the gospel, in the name of Jesus, that the apostles come and lay their hands on them in the name of Jesus. And you may wonder, and I, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it this morning, you haven't asked any questions yet, but this whole case, so they get baptized and the Holy Spirit comes separately. Well, we saw that happen you know, in Acts 2 that the Spirit came in a really like, demonstrative way on the Jews there in Jerusalem. Like, here it is, entering into Jerusalem. This is the very first time now that the gospel's breaking out of Jerusalem. And I think, I'm just going to offer my thought right here, what's going on is that God is giving uh, like verification or validation of, yes, I'm really accepting the Samaritans. And the apostles can come and be eyewitnesses. And look, my spirit comes on them in the exact same way that it did on the Jews. And we'll see one more breakthrough in the same way later. I think it's Acts, maybe Acts 19 uh, with one more group because you've got ends of the earth happening as well. But other than that, we don't see kind of this separation between, oh, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Later the spirit comes. It just happens those few times. And so it doesn't seem like a pattern. It doesn't always happen that way. But I do think it's a very significant moment in the history of the church when it's saying we're spreading outside of just the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Judea to the, the kind of half Jews, the, the rejected Samaritans in the north. And God validates and he says, yes, I'm accepting. And I'm accepting them in the exact same way. I'm giving them the exact same spirit that I gave to you. They are fully part of my church. 
And so, but we see that all that, like all the spiritual power and the access that God has given them, Simon has none of that power and none of that access. And one of his problems is he still thinks, well, I can get that somehow other than Jesus. Now he comes to the apostles and says, here, here's silver. Let me have, let, let me have the power that you have. And like, this isn't for sale. <laughs> There's nothing that you can do to access or earn or buy this. It's in the name of Jesus alone. And if you don't see that yet, you need to repent. <laughs> repent that you don't believe that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Repent that you don't yet believe that Jesus is so much better than any other spiritual power and also that you just want the power, it seems like, and you don't want Jesus yet. Make sure you know that Jesus is better. Yes, Jesus does give you access to the power of God himself, the Spirit of God himself, and that's better than any other spiritual power anyway. But also Jesus is better than any spiritual power you would ever have. Jesus himself is better, and you should want him. I think that's a lot of what's going on there in that section of chapter 8. And you may have other thoughts. Throw them out here if you do, or other truths about God from anywhere else that you want to add in the next couple of minutes, and then I'll share some thoughts to wrap us up. Mm, that's great. There is nobody so evil... That God can't reach them. You know, if we're right about Simon and he's relying on dark spiritual powers to be able to perform magic, like he's far in the grips of darkness and wickedness and evil, and yet the gospel's for him. And the gospel reaches him in a way that he believes, and, and clearly he doesn't believe perfectly at first. And yet the gospel's still for him. And even when he believes imperfectly, the gospel's for him saying, hey, now repent of your imperfect belief and come to a deeper faith in Jesus. But it's not, it's not, no, you're too far gone, you're too evil, you're too dark. And it's not, hey, you're the enemy and we're against you. It's, you're the one we're rescuing. Jesus came for you. I mean, you are the enemy, we're all the enemy, but Jesus came for his enemies. Anything else? Yeah, it's hard to know where Simon ends up. This pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And I, and I feel like sometimes when the Bible doesn't give us this definitive answer, we just have to say, we don't know for sure. And there's some good in that for us because like, I don't know for sure where your heart ends up. You don't know for sure where my heart ends up. God and God alone does. And even a prayer like this, it could be that he doesn't get it and he doesn't have a relationship with God. And he said, pray for me that that won't happen to me. Or this could also be like a really humble confession of, oh my word, I'm in so much trouble. Will you please pray for me? I pray that doesn't happen to me and and come in a place of humility. And it's hard for us to read and know. And I think what we would say is that for all of us, like if you read this story and you realize you're Simon, you're not Philip and you're not Peter and you're not John and you're not the apostles, neither am I. You're Simon and I'm Simon. And you read the story and you see this progression, this growth that's taking place, this initial turning away from what he's been doing and turning to Jesus, but an imperfect understanding of it. And then they come and they teach him again. And there is a response where, you know, I will say one thing for him in verse 24. He doesn't say, no, I'm not full of bitterness and iniquity. What are you talking about? The things I'm doing are right. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm good to go. He doesn't say that. Like He admits there's still something wrong with him. So there's some kind of good progression there. Um, And so we may be seeing the first two steps of Simon's spiritual journey and just not the rest of it. And I would just, I would encourage all of us to have the humility to say, hey, I don't get it all. I didn't get it all here. And even though I, the fact that I get more now than I did then reminds me that I didn't get it all then, but it also clues me into the fact that I probably don't get it all now, and hopefully I'll get more here than I did here. But by then, I should really know, yeah, I don't ever get it all, so even though I'm getting more here, I'm not getting it all. And to keep coming with this humble openness to, God, what do you need to expose in my heart? What's hidden down? Because the other thing that's interesting to me is that Simon wants to buy this spiritual power, and Peter looks at him and says, you're in the gall of bitterness. 
I don't think that Simon was sitting there thinking, you know what my big problem is? There's a lot of bitterness in me. <laughs> and and I, I, that isn't the label that I would have given to what he did right here. But, but I think God allowed Peter to see something in Simon's heart that he was exposing right then. He was saying, hey, there's a bitterness inside you that still needs to be dealt with. And there may be things God's saying to you this morning. Certain types of bitterness, jealousy, resentment, anger, greed, coveting, that, that he's exposing in your heart and saying, yeah, y- yes, yes, you've believed, and yes, you've taken these steps, and yes, you've repented here. Now I'm going to do some more cleaning work in your heart. There's some more things I'm going to expose. There's more things I'm going to show you there. And that's why it's so important for us to come and not put up this facade and this mask of everything's good and I'm all right and I've got it all together and I do everything right now. You don't. Like We constantly need Jesus to be exposing our hearts and cleaning our hearts and purifying our hearts and living in us and producing his life in us. What else stands out to you? Yes. Okay. Okay. So I went to Simon. He was talking about Saul. And yes. Reliving Saul here. This is how evil Saul is. They throw rocks at a guy for preaching the Bible to them. And Saul approves of that. Then, after this execution, they persecute the church in Jerusalem. The church is scattered. Right? Which you feel like for the religious leaders in Jerusalem, here's the goal. We've, we've got rid of them. They're gone now. We got them out of Jerusalem. They're not here preaching the name of Jesus all the time anymore. We've killed the church in Jerusalem. But Saul, so evil, is not satisfied with that. He goes and chases them down after they've left, ravaging the church. He's going into their homes. It's not just, hey, if you're out in public preaching about Jesus, we're going to arrest you. We may throw rocks at you. When you're in your house, I'm going to come find you, and I'm going to drag you off and throw you in prison for believing in Jesus. That's where Saul is in chapter 8. In chapter 9, while Saul is doing this, is when Jesus comes to him and changes him so completely that, first of all, he changes his name from Saul to Paul. He's the guy that writes 13 letters out of the 27 books in the New Testament. Almost half, you know, as far as counting separate books, almost half the New Testament written by him. And, and most of all, he goes from, I'm going to kill you if you talk about Jesus, to you'll have to kill me to stop me from talking about Jesus. Like just the, the complete change of Saul by the grace of God, that Jesus came and just grabbed hold of him and said, you are mine, and this is who you're going to be now. Like, while you're my enemy, while you're rebelling against me, while you're persecuting my church, while you're killing my people, I'll come and get you and change you and make you mine. Like, there is nobody so evil that God can't reach them. What else? God will use both willing and unwilling participants. That says participants. <laughs> to accomplish his purposes. You want to tell us exactly what you mean before I start talking? <laughs> Right. To their own detriment. And God accomplished his purpose through both Stephen and the Jews. Yeah, yeah and, and so you know, Stephen willingly put in his life on the line to make Jesus known. 
He knows why they have him on trial. It's because of this. they think he's a threat to their traditions and their law and the temple. And he stands right in front of them and says, hey, your traditions and the law and the temple, that is, has never been what God's been most concerned about. And, and he declares Jesus to them in such a way that they, like he willingly dies for Jesus. But then all these religious leaders who kill Stephen, I want you to think about if Jesus had explicitly said to them, like if he had walked into these religious leaders and said, here's what's going to happen. Think about what their reaction would be. He's like, I'm going to use you to spread my church to this whole country. And here's how I'm going to do it. You're going to kill one of my leaders. You're going to persecute my whole church. And that's how my church is going to grow. And you're going to be the main instrument I use to grow my church. Like if he said that to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Like we don't think of it, that, but it's exactly what he does right here. The, the, the people who trust him, he's at work in their lives. He's using them to build the church. But also the people who don't trust him, they're still not outside of the fact that he's King Jesus. And this is his kingdom. And he is God over all. Right? He is the king over the kings and the ruler over the rulers and the Lord over the lords. And they can do whatever they want and they can plan however they want. And it can look however it may look to human eyes in the world. But I guarantee you this, Jesus is doing what Jesus has said he will do. Jesus is accomplishing his purposes. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is advancing his kingdom. And I want you to take hope in that right now. That when you look at so many areas of the world and, and, and so many governments and so many leaders and, and, and you just think, there's nothing godly in this. There's nothing in this that looks biblical, that looks like it has any spiritual good in it. There, there's no hope there. There is hope there. Because God doesn't work the way we would. And God isn't stopped by that. And, and God isn't thwarted by that. God's in charge of that. God's in control of that. And it may be, you know, if you can imagine a chef that's a really, really good chef, but, but you give him the, just like the best ingredients you can think of, like just really good tasting stuff, and he makes you a great meal, you may think, hey, this is a great meal. This is really, really good. But then if there was a chef that was so great that you could bring him stuff that was dirty and rotten and spoiled and poisonous, and somehow he could take those ingredients and make you a great meal, a life-giving, healthy meal, you'd be like, there's no other chef like this. Like nobody can take trash and make something great out of it. And just see that that's what God is doing. Like we trashed his world with our sin. He created a perfect world, and sin trashed it. And he didn't say, hey, I'm chucking it. He said, I'm going to come, and I'm going to write a story of redemption that's even more beautiful than this original perfection was. I'm going to take your trash, and I'm going to make it something beautiful. And even in the world right now, I promise you, all the things that are against him, that look like they're against him, even when they look like they're conquering his purposes, it's nothing for him to grab hold of those things and say, I will work this together for good. All things, all things, I will work them together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is what he's doing. With the eyes of faith, we can see it and we can believe it. You won't always see it with your natural eyes, but trust him. He's been doing it all along and he's still doing it right now. And this is why Yes, give your life to this. If you, see, if you see nothing, no results, no response, if it looks like it's darker and worse and worse, guess what? <laughs> it's about to get really good right in that moment. That's when he does his best work. That's where he brings life out of death. You can believe that in your life, and you can believe that in his world. You can believe that for his church. God will use both willing and unwilling participants to accomplish his purposes. Nothing's going to stop him. One more, anything else? I feel like we've had a lot, and I want to make sure I didn't miss anybody. The Holy Spirit is an important and necessary aspect and person for us to walk 
in Jesus. This three-person God, and maybe we need to spend a week on this sometime because I know there's all kinds of mystery in the Trinity, but one God, one true God, who is so beyond us, so much more complex than us, that we can't wrap our minds what it's like to be it, but one, per, one being, one God, who has three persons inside of him. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are separate persons from one another, but all fully God and fully God together as one being. Just a being more complex than us. And, and the way that it has worked is that God the Father sends God the Son right, to secure salvation for his people to die in our place for our sins, to be raised to life and to share that resurrection life with us. And then when the Son ascends into heaven, God the Son sends God the Spirit to come and live. The, the, the actual power for following Jesus, when you are trusting Jesus, the power for following Jesus comes from God the Spirit living in you. That this is the work, this is the way that God lives out your salvation. Your, your growth in holiness and becoming like Jesus is by the Holy Spirit. That in a real sense, every single time we pray together and ask God to do a spiritual work, we're confessing our need for the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God can do. And it is easy for us to overlook that the Holy Spirit is God and that the Holy Spirit is who Jesus has given to us for this period where he's in heaven and we're still here. The Spirit is Jesus here with us. It's the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. This is God himself coming to dwell with us, dwell inside of us, and be our God and give to us what we need for what he's called us to do. That there's nothing that he asks you to do for him that he doesn't give to you what you need in his Spirit. And so the question is always, are we trusting him? Are we relying on him? Are we looking? To, are we praying in a way that we believe this is what he does and this is how he does it? And right along those lines, the thing, one of the things that stood out to me this week is I looked at, I feel like we had three sections here. You've got the religious leaders who stoned Stephen, and then you've got the story with Simon, and then we've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which we really haven't even talked about yet this morning. And I was thinking about how... Each of them, you've got something different that they're relying on. So, you know, with the religious leaders, it's their religious traditions and their religious location, place. That's what they're so worked up about. Our traditions, our law, this place, this temple. And what we see is that none of that's enough. Like, it, it does not save them. It does not change their hearts with Simon, you had spiritual power. And of course, it was dark spiritual power. But spiritual power wasn't enough to save him, wasn't enough to change his heart. And then with the Ethiopian eunuch, think about this. He's, in, he's, in the, he's been to the temple. He's been to the religious place. He's in the chariot reading the Bible. He's reading Isaiah. He's got religious knowledge. And it's not enough. But he's still in the dark while he's reading. Like, this is not enough. This is not enough. This is not enough by itself. That there's something else that has to happen. And we see it both with Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip shows up and he preaches Jesus to them. Like he, he tells them about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and they see the truth about Jesus. It's like none of that's enough because only Jesus is enough. Like it, it must, like whatever your religion is, whatever you think it is that you're relying on, if it's not built on Jesus, if it's not saturated with Jesus, if it's not defined by Jesus, it will not be enough. And we see it in this sermon Stephen preaches. I just want you to see that the Bible is constantly telling us that this is what's going on and this is the problem and this is why we have to approach the Bible and, and religion and Bible study this way. Stephen spends his whole sermon and he gets right here, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Do you see what God, they, they've got the law, they've got the traditions, they've got the temple and they're real, real passionate about their religion. And he's like, your hearts are uncircumcised. 
Your heart's the problem. God is concerned with your heart, and only Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can change your heart. And your uncircumcised ears, they, you, you, yeah, you hear the truth, but you don't hear the truth. That there is a deeper spiritual work that has to take place here. And religious traditions and religious locations and religious schedules and spiritual power and religious knowledge can't uncircumcise your ears. Only Jesus can. That Jesus is the answer. So even, even more, we would have said that you know, the external religion, that they could point to their laws and they could obey them on the outside and they could point to a location, they could point to a place and they could come to the temple. All that external stuff couldn't fix their internal problem. Right? External solutions don't fix internal heart problems. External solutions may look really, really good, but they haven't changed you where you need to be changed. And one of the ways it stands out to me is, remember, like they're, they're all worked up about the temple. And Stephen's preached through the whole Testament. And he comes, he's like, okay, so let's just think about what happened here. Our fathers, like the history of the Jews back through the whole Testament, they had the tent of witness in the wilderness with Moses, this is about 1500 B.C., okay? They have that for 500 years till the days of David. You know, we're somewhere around 1,000 B.C. here. Solomon actually builds it, let's just say 950 B.C. That one gets destroyed. They rebuild another one, uh, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, when they come back from the exile. And so he's like, all right, so they've had it the whole time. 1500, when, they, when he's standing here, 1,500 years, you've had one building or another that you've thought is the center of your religion, and here's what God was already, like when you had those things, here's what he's saying to you. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Right? This is in the Old Testament. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What's the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Like you can't, it was grace from God that he came down and dwelt in that tabernacle. It was grace from God that he came down and dwelt in that temple. They didn't give him something that he needed. He was giving them something they needed when he came and dwelled in their religious facility. Do you see that? He didn't need that from them. He was doing something for them. But then Stephen's like, okay, so for 1,500 years, you've had one facility or another that you think so important. And here's who you are, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Your temple has never done it for you. As your fathers did, so did you. Your temple didn't do it for them either. They had the external thing for 1,500 years, and they've all missed the Spirit of God. Because that's not where he lives. Now, look at this. Where does he live? Inside his people? This is mind-boggling. Heaven's my throne and earth is my footstool. What can you build for me? That's what God's saying. I don't need anything. I dwell everywhere. It's all mine. I made it all. And then that same God says, now come live in The one who has made everything and needs nothing says, I will come and dwell in my people. He lives in you if you are trusting Jesus. You want to know how he's going to build his church? Not by building another building that he's never needed. By raising up people full of the Holy Spirit to speak his word that the Spirit of God and the Word of God will dwell in the people of God and make God known. And it will not look like the way we would do it. It will not be man's plans because God's ways are different and greater than our ways. And so watch what happens right here. Because God's people, because he's not living in a building. You know, they were still, the early church was still gathering in that temple. It was their gathering place. They get blasted out of Jerusalem. They don't have a gathering place anymore. So is the church done because they don't have a location and a facility to gather in? Well, no, because the Holy Spirit didn't live in that temple. The Holy Spirit lives in the people. And that's why when we get right down here, 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is what happens when God lives in his people. You can't kill his church as long as his people are alive somewhere. It doesn't matter where they are, wherever they go. And so that's my question for us all the time. Wherever you go, are you speaking about Jesus? Are you making Jesus known? Are you taking the spirit of God and the word of God and being the church of God? When you scatter out of this place today to your home, with your family, to your friends, your neighbors, your subdivision, to work tomorrow, to school tomorrow, is the Spirit of God living in you and you're preaching the Word wherever you go. And by that we mean doing what Philip did. It's just wherever you are, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. If you're Simon and you're lost in dark magic and evil powers, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And if you're the Ethiopian eunuch and you're this close and you're reading Isaiah 53 and it's like Jesus is written all over the page, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. It doesn't matter. It's always the same answer. It's always Jesus. Wherever they are, wherever you are, this this is what God has done that's so mind-boggling and so brilliant. You can't contain him to a location. You can't contain him to a facility because he's come to live in his people. All of his people. And, and so I was thinking back. You know, we started earlier this summer in Matthew 16 and 18. And actually one week after, I, we'd already done Matthew 18 two weeks in a row. And Keith and Carol were standing down here and we started talking. And we were talking about this section right here. And this is the last thing, I promise. And we'll, we'll wrap up and we'll sing together one more time. But when Jesus comes to the disciples, he says, hey, who do, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies with the spiritual truth that God's revealed to him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This had to be a spiritual work of my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, Peter means rock, on this rock that you just declared the truth of who I am, I, here's this promise, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail again. Nothing will be able to stop it. Here, hell is rolling out all the religious leaders and religious power of Jerusalem against the church, destroying the church, and they can't stop it. Like it's growing, it's spreading in spite of, and then he makes this crazy statement. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he's saying, I'm giving you access to my kingdom. Like you, you, you fishermen, you uneducated, you know, in Acts 4, when they're before the, the Sanhedrin, they said they took note like, that these were common uneducated men. You uneducated fishermen, you, you tax collectors, you, you outcasts, you, you 12 that I've called that nobody else in the world would have chosen. I am giving you the authority and the access to the kingdom of God. And, and when you speak this truth of the gospel, it will be the determining factor, the truth of who Jesus is, of who gets in and who gets out, what's bound and what's loosed. Like on the spiritual level, this declaration that you can make about Jesus carries all the spiritual power to determine eternal destinies for people. And I want you to think about who these people were. This is what we talked about that day after church. They're they're lifelong Jews. And they've got the whole Old Testament, this thing that Stephen just preached to them. And in the whole Old Testament, I want you to think about the temple. And it was so important. The tabernacle and the temple was so important to them. But do you remember how that worked? Like once they built the Holy of Holies in the middle and God came down, like manifest that, that cloud that dwelled in there. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, right? Once a year, this is the the Old Testament. Once a year, one person, which was the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. There was this one specific place and be in the presence of God. One day a year, one person in one place. That's where they could encounter God. And think about how revolutionary it is for Jesus to say, I'm going to give you uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, rejects, outcasts, you 12 disciples who, by the way, you've not gotten it the whole time I've been here. Like over and over, you don't understand my sermons. I got to explain them to you afterwards. Every time something goes wrong, you freak out. You don't come to me and ask me for food. You think you're gonna go buy it with your own money. You just don't get anything right ever. And I'm giving you direct access to the presence of God all the time. Do you know how this changes everything? Like now, any time, any time that you cry out to God in prayer, 
direct access to God because the Spirit of God lives in you and because the Son of God intercedes for you. Anyone, nobody too evil, nobody too far gone, nobody too common, nobody too uneducated, anyone in the name of Jesus, anywhere, anywhere, blow up Jerusalem. It doesn't matter because wherever they go, the Spirit of God goes with them. And I want to ask you this morning, like if, if you were to think about honestly your view of religion and church, the, the North American, Western culture view of religion and church, the Bible Belt view, like what we grew up in, does it look more like this or more like this? Do you still approach your religion like Jesus hasn't come yet? Where not once a, a year, but once a week, We'll come to one specific place and this one person will tell us about God. And that'll be it. And we'll call that church. Or is it anytime, anywhere, anyone full of the Spirit? This, this is how God's chosen to build His church. He's changed something. He has set us free. This can be one piece of it. This is a gathering to build up the body, right? To strengthen and to encourage and to give hope and to feed. Yes, absolutely. But then to scatter, (laughs) to be the church, to make Jesus known because you have this access anytime now, anywhere, all of you in Jesus, trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, speaking Jesus. Like God made a massive shift when he sent Jesus. He said, all this stuff that was very limited and very localized, I'm blowing it up and making it universal. And I feel like we keep running back and ignoring what he did in Jesus in terms of what the church is supposed to be. Like This is not the old covenant. This is not the Old Testament. This is not the temple in Israel. This is the new covenant church of God, the people of God filled with the Spirit of God to speak the Word of God, to reach the world for God. Do you see just the the extreme change there? And then the last thing I would say to wrap it all up, when we say that it's, it's, it's not like this person's place, all that kind of stuff, with the temple, they had to go there They had to bring their sacrifices there. The high priest had to go there. They had to go there to meet with God. Do you see what he's done differently now? So much better, so much greater. We, We already said it with Saul, with Paul this morning. You don't have to go somewhere to find God because God came and found you. You don't have to go somewhere to meet with God because God said, I'm going to come and live in you. While we were all off chasing our own stuff, either our own hopes and dreams in this world or our own religious achievements, when we were running after our own temple and saying, look at me, I'm going to go find God here. While we were turning our backs on God, God came in Jesus and found us. You don't have to go meet with God because God came to find you. And so I pray that you open your eyes this morning. And you'll see who Jesus really is. And you'll see the grace of God, the pursuit of God to come find you where you were. To do for you what you were never, you weren't going to get to him. And he came and got you. You weren't going to find him and he came and found you. You weren't ever going to be good enough for him. And he came and he was more than enough for you. And so now when he calls us to do things that are beyond us and bigger than us and different than us, Well, that's because he's come and done something beyond us and bigger than us and different than us. And he offers all that to us. And I pray that you'll see Jesus that way. That when Philip sits there and reads Isaiah 53 with that Ethiopian eunuch, if you want to go back and read it later today, that you would know this, that it's all because of Jesus. That he was crushed so that you can be healed. That he was broken so that you can be made whole. He was rejected so that you can be accepted by God. He was cast out so that God can welcome you to him. He was 
killed, crushed by the Lord, made dead, so that you can be made alive, resurrected, given new life in Jesus. He was blamed for your sins so that you can be forgiven for your sins. He bled for you so that you can be washed clean by him. That's who he is. That's who Philip preached to that Ethiopian eunuch. He's the one who's the answer for all of us. Wherever you are this morning, whatever's gone on in your life, whatever you're dealing with right now, I promised you that to see Jesus and know Jesus is the answer for you. And I pray that we'll be his church by the power of his spirit who lives in us. Will you pray that with me right now? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have done everything for us that we needed, that we could not do for ourselves. We trust you and we believe you in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray that you'll keep working in our hearts, that whatever the next step is, that you will lead us in it by your spirit, continuing to create pure hearts in us and and to strip away the things that aren't you and to build your church by the power of your spirit according to your promise because you have said it and we know that you are doing it and we know all this because of Jesus. So it's his name we pray right now. Amen.